Hey everybody, this is Weston Brown, one of the pastors at Covenant Church, and thanks for taking some time to listen to this equipping class. This is week three of our equipping class called Logos Foundations of Effective Bible Study. And in this class, we've been asking questions just about the nature of the Bible, uh, questions about the history of the Bible, and also about the authority and reliability of the Bible. Uh, We've also been digging into the concept of inductive Bible study. Inductive Bible study involves three primary elements, observation, interpretation, and application. And so last week we introduced just that concept, and this week we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the second part of inductive Bible study, which is interpretation. So one of the things we said last week Um, as we talked about observing Scripture, is that the goal, really, of inductive Bible study is to let the text speak for itself. Um, We don't want to impose our own agenda or our own preconceptions on Scripture. We don't want to make it say what we want it to say or twist it uh, in some way. Instead, we want to come to the Bible And to some extent, try to clear our minds of what we think we already know about it. And so what we want to do is spend a lot of time observing what's on the page. And out of the three components of inductive Bible study, observation, interpretation, and application, observation is the one that we probably should spend the most time on because it is the foundation of, of everything for us. So uh, the key to effective interpretation is adequate observation. And likewise, if we're going to accurately and adequately apply the Word of God to our lives, we not only have to interpret it correctly, but that all begins with observing everything that, that, that is there and, and letting the text just speak for itself. So this week we're going to dig into interpretation, and this isn't meant to be uh, a full uh, view or full scope uh, lesson on all of the ins and outs of biblical hermeneutics, which is a word that I'll explain in a minute, but it is meant to give us a little bit of a foundation for interpreting the Old Testament and the New Testament so that we can then next week talk about application, how we take the Word of God and apply it to our lives. And then what we're going to do in the last two weeks of this class is we're actually going to circle back around to interpretation and uh, explore that even more and look at a bunch of passages and kind of follow the trail of observing Scripture, interpreting Scripture, um, and then applying it in, in like a doctrinal way. How do we get from what's on the pages of Scripture um, to some of the foundational beliefs of the Christian church? And so we're going to look at that stuff in the last two weeks. We're also going to explore uh, the impact of literary genre on individual books of the Bible. And we'll talk about that a little bit today. Um, But that'll come in the next, uh, or I guess week after next. So uh, today, uh, let's just begin with a little bit of a focus statement to guide our time. And the focus statement um, comes from the book of Hebrews, and it's this. The Word of God is living, active and unchanging. And so as we've said, we believe that this is God's divine word to us. We believe the Bible is inspired by God, that it is uh, inerrant, 
and that it is infallible, meaning that it is free from error, and it's also incapable of error. And that text in Hebrews is Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so what that passage tells us about the Bible is that it is this, uh, this razor that kind of cuts us in half and, and sees who we really are. It exposes who we really are. It exposes our true nature and our true thoughts and intentions and motivations, and it reveals those things to us. It also reveals to us who God is and the dichotomy between who God is and who Scripture reveals us to be is ultimately something that should lead us to repentance as we see the beauty of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. When we recognize how how, how far short we fall from the glory of God, God's ultimate perfection, it's so amazing that He sent His Son Jesus to die for us. And, And when we recognize those things, His great love, His mercy, His grace, um, It's His kindness, Scripture says, that ultimately leads us to repentance. And so the Word of God is critical in our lives. And not just reading it, but really delving into it and exploring it um, and kind of feasting on it should be the part, uh, should be a a significant part of the life of any believer. And so so let's jump into uh, interpreting... Uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're going to kind of break it up in that way. Rather than just throwing out some general uh, guidelines for interpretation, we're going to talk specific, specifically about some things that we find in the Old Testament and then some things that we find in the New Testament as well. And let's start with just some, some key words that relate to interpretation. And the first word is that big word I used earlier. It's the word hermeneutics. Um, or you might hear it, uh, you might hear the the cognate hermeneutical. Um, Hermeneutics is just simply the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation. And it doesn't necessarily have to relate to biblical interpretation. However, I think that's most often when you hear this word used. I mean, it could relate to interpreting any kind of literary text. But that word just uh, has to do with that whole field of knowledge related to interpretation. Another word is the word exegesis. And so you might hear Bible teachers talk about exegeting a text. Um, and, and all that's really talking about is just drawing the meaning out of a text. It's a kind of a two-part word. It's ex, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. And so that ex in exegesis has to do with the drawing out, bringing out the truth of a passage of Scripture. If it was eisegesis, it would be the opposite. It would be um, trying to insert our own meaning into the text. And we don't want to do that. And then finally, the, the last word is exposition. So hermeneutics, exegesis, and then exposition. And exposition um, is often used in relationship to preaching. You might hear about expository sermons. And 
All that that word is trying to say uh, is that we want to expose the meaning of a particular text. And so we're going to do exegesis in the pursuit of biblical exposition. And so those are probably not words you use every day uh, or hear every day. And, and yet, as we talk about some of, um, some of these things, they are words that do come up. And so I want, want you to have just a little bit of insight into what we're talking about. And from there, let's just go ahead and jump right into the Old Testament. And so as we've said in previous weeks, uh, the Bible is divided into two primary sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, The Old Testament um, is essentially the Hebrew Bible, and it is made up of three primary parts. You have the books of the law, uh, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, You have the prophetic works, guys like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah, people like that. Uh, And then you have the poetic books. You have the Psalms and the Proverbs. You have books like Song of Solomon. And so that's kind of the makeup of the Old Testament. And so let's talk about five uh, just interpretive lenses for reading the Old Testament. Five ways that we can um, approach this part of the Bible. And all of these are C words, um, just to be nice and orderly. Um, And the first C word is context. Now, we've talked about context probably every week because it is so important. If if we don't have an adequate understanding of the context of a passage, then I would say it's impossible to really interpret it correctly. And the same thing is true, uh, I think, of you and your life to some extent. Um, You have people that are acquainted with you or, or maybe friends with you, but maybe they don't fully know you or they don't fully get you. And that's because they don't fully understand your context, meaning they don't fully understand the circumstances that have conspired to make you you. And so uh, an example of this is you may have friends that you're acquainted with, people who... Um, People who know you, but who uh, they don't know your parents, or they don't um, they don't know about the environment that you grew up in, or maybe they have never been to your hometown, or they've never been to like the school that you went to, or they don't know who your childhood friends were, or maybe they don't know about some traumatic event that happened uh, when you were thirteen, and, and so they know you, but they don't know you. And I think the same thing is true of the Bible. I think that there are a lot of churched people who, in general, would say that they know the Bible um, because they feel like they do, because they have heard stories uh, about the Bible and about biblical characters for most of their lives. And so on some level, yes, they do know um, in a cursory cursory way um, the general story arc of what happens in Scripture, but when it comes to actually studying and interpreting and applying the Word of God on your own, many people in churches in America today have have never really done that on their own and and have never been trained to do that either. That is something that uh, they kind of rely on professionals to do for them. And yet we don't get any real sense in the Bible that um, reading the Word of God and studying the Word of God, that that's something that only um, 
master's level educated people can do. Um, Instead, we believe that this is God's word to all people. It should be read by all people and it should be studied by all people. And and that God has made his word pretty plain (laughs) in, in most in most places. And we'll look at um, some more challenging verses in, in the weeks to come and also a little bit today. But um, we feel like for the most part, um, the Bible is easy to navigate. You just have to do it. And it's a big book. And it's a strange book at times. And it can be a confusing book at times. And, um, and yet, it's so key. Um, it, it's, it's not just a guide for our life. It is the way that we know and understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and who God is and how much God loves us. Um, so, context is huge. And, and when we talk about context, there, there are a bunch of key questions we want to ask. Um, we want to know who's the author. Remember, the Bible is made up of 66 individual distinct books. And so who's the author of the book that you're reading? If you're reading the book of John, who is the author of John? Is it this guy named John? And if so, who is John? What's his story? What's his background? Um, Why did he write this book? Um, What kind of book is this? What is the genre? Is this uh, poetry? Is this prophecy? Is this um, a historical account, a chronological historical account? What is it? Um, When was it written? Well, that's, that's... incredibly important when you're considering the Bible, because the Bible spans a period of almost 2,000 years. And so what era or epoch uh, the particular text that you're reading was written in is, is hugely important when it comes to establishing context. And we'll see that in greater detail in just a minute. Um, what was the intent of the author? Um, so, so an old adage that uh, I think is important for us to remember is that there is one interpretation, but there are many applications. And what that means is this. There are not varieties of ways to interpret any passage of Scripture. It means what it means. It only means one thing. Uh, There's not a passage of Scripture that means multiple things. But... A passage of Scripture can have multiple interpretations in your life. And maybe you've experienced this before, where you've read a particular passage and and you feel like you have an understanding of of what it means and what maybe the author's intent was and what it was saying. But for some reason, one day, you read it again and suddenly the Holy Spirit reveals something to you about that text that immediately applies to your life. And then maybe 10 years later, you read it again, and the same thing happens again, but suddenly the application is different. It doesn't mean that the interpretation of the passage has changed. It just means that God's Holy Spirit is speaking His Word into your life and is showing you the ways that uh, the Bible um, speaks into the everyday stuff that we encounter. Whether it's uh, relationships or faith or marriage or whatever, politics, the list goes on. And so, uh, one interpretation, many applications. The other contextual question we want to ask is, what's around this text? 
You know, I, I think in American Christianity, um, we're notorious for pulling little snippets of the Bible um, out of the particular book that they're in or the particular section of the book that they're in and just kind of pulling them out and trying to make them stand alone. And sometimes that's okay. And then sometimes if you pull a text out of the section of Scripture that it's in or the chapter of Scripture that it's in, then it becomes very difficult to fully understand what the author was intending. And so we want to be careful when we're reading any passage to be clear on what is around it, what led into this, um, what happens after this. And so my recommendation is to read whole books at a time, read whole books of the Bible at a time, and, and begin there in your study. Um, don't just randomly open to Romans chapter 13. Um, you don't have a good sense of what has come before in the preceding 12 chapters. You can't just start there. And so start by just reading the whole book of Romans, not, not doing all this observation, interpretation, application stuff. Just read it. Just read it like it's a novel. Um, and then go back. Once you have a, a sense of, hey, here's kind of what's going on here. The Holy Spirit comes. The apostles are sent out. Uh, there's this guy Peter, uh, there's this guy Paul, uh, here's part of their story. The book of Acts kind of tells um, the birth of the early church. And so now that I have a little bit of a sense for what happens in um, the book of Acts, or I'm sorry, we were talking about the book of Romans, um, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, now that I have a, a sense of kind of what's happening there, I can go back to the beginning and really begin this process of inductive Bible study. And um, I think you will be... Uh, You'll be pleased that you're able to more quickly arrive at an accurate interpretation of what you're reading because you already have some sense for what is there and what has happened and what is to come. And so context is huge. And, and just as, as a little bit of an example, and, and I, uh, hopefully this will create a little bit of tension for you, um, I just want to pull a verse out. And this is a, a controversial verse. And this is 1 Timothy uh, 2.12. 1 Timothy 2.12. And here's what 1 Timothy 2.12 says. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And so, hopefully, in your mind, what's happening right now, when you hear a verse like that, um, and I say hopefully in, in a sort of sarcastic way because I want you to recognize this about yourself, and this is true of me and most people, is, is we hear a verse like this, and, and what we immediately do is we bypass interpretation, and we jump directly to application. And this is so true of the way that most of us read the Bible. Um, we very quickly read what's on the page. We bypass interpretation, and then immediately jump to application. What does this mean for me? But we cannot adequately answer the question, what does this mean for me, if we don't first know what the passage itself means. So we're not going to answer that for this passage today. Um, we're going to have to just kind of live in this tension a little bit. But, but let's talk context briefly. Uh, what book is this? Again, again, the text is 
1 Timothy 2.12, I don't permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So where is this coming from? Well, this is the book of 1 Timothy. Okay, Where, where is the book of 1 Timothy? It's a book in the New Testament. Okay, um, Who's the author? The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Timothy. Uh, who is he writing to? When is he writing? Um, well, he's writing to this guy, Timothy. And Timothy... Uh, was a young pastor and associate of Paul, and Paul is sort of a mentor to Timothy. And so he is writing this letter to him, and he writes another letter to him as well in the New Testament, 2 Timothy. And um, where, where is he? Where is this young pastor doing ministry? Well, he's, he's doing ministry in the city of Ephesus. And um, this, is, this is huge. What is the city of Ephesus? Where is that? Um, what was the cultural situation in the city of Ephesus? Now, here's something a good study Bible is going to tell you. If you just read the introduction to the book of 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy is going to tell, or the introduction in the ESV study Bible is going to tell you that Paul wrote 1 Timothy in order to advise his young co-worker, Timothy, concerning issues that were arising at the church in Ephesus. And so when Paul left Timothy in Ephesus... He had specifically charged him to deal with some false teachers in the church. And so that gives us, very quickly, and we didn't have to do a lot of digging there, that very quickly gives us some kind of an idea about what the purpose or the subject matter or the intent of this book is. Paul is trying to ward off false teaching in the church. And something specifically is going on in this city of Ephesus. Um, There's some kind of false teaching that's happening. And um, I think it's helpful in these situations to just do a little bit of historical study, a little bit of historical research into where was the city of Ephesus? What was going on there? What was the cultural situation at the time? And even just, you know, kind of a junior high level study of ancient history will very quickly reveal to you that the city of Ephesus was the home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was this beautiful, um, enormous temple to the goddess Artemis, who was also known as the goddess Diana. And the temple of Diana was uh, kind of the center of religious life and culture for the city of Ephesus. And what's interesting about this is this predated Jesus, um, this worship of the goddess Diana predated Jesus. And the way that they went about worshiping Diana, who was a fertility goddess, was um, through these just very erotic worship rituals And in many cases, um, what some people would call sacred prostitution or religious prostitution. And so many of the quote-unquote priests in the temple of Diana were women who were like priest slash prostitute. And, And so even just understanding that a little bit and the role of women in the city of Ephesus and the role of these major cultural touchstones like the temple of Diana, gives us maybe a little bit of insight into what Timothy was facing, um, what maybe particular kinds of false teaching might be creeping in. Um, And so even just pulling this one verse out, um, doing a little bit of background on the book of 1 Timothy, 
gives us perhaps a little bit of insight into next steps that we can take in attempting to interpret attempting to interpret that passage. So context is everything. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, the next C is the word covenant. And what we're primarily getting at when we're studying the Old Testament and we're talking about covenant is we're asking the question, what covenant era are we under? And so the covenants uh, are sort of a guide to some extent for understanding the makeup of the Old Testament. So there are uh, four or five different covenants that God makes with man. And a part of this is uh, a theological term called progressive revelation. Um, and, and this is the idea that God is unfolding his plans over time rather than all at once. And God uses these covenants with men to reveal pieces of his grand plan. And so that's progressive revelation. You know, in the book of Genesis chapter 1, God doesn't lay out, um, here's what the next uh, few centuries or millennia are going to look like. Here's exactly what I'm going to do. Here's when I'm going to do it. Here's how I'm going to do it. God doesn't do that for us. Um, Instead, he progressively unveils his plan over time. And in the Old Testament, a lot of that happens through the covenants. And so when we're reading, we want to ask, where is this passage within the covenantal biblical storyline? And so just quickly to walk through some of the covenants, you have the uh, Adamic covenant, uh, so the covenant that God makes with Adam. And this covenant kind of has two parts. There's the early phase, or what some people call the Edenic phase, the phase when they are in the Garden of Eden, and God gives them specific instructions to be fruitful and multiply, to, to kind of take care of the garden. And then we know that they disobey God, they turn down their own path, and they sin against Him. And so God uh, makes uh, sort of another covenant with Adam. And as a part of this covenant, He shows them grace. Um, They don't die immediately. Um, He clothes them in their nakedness. But He also um, speaks of the serpent, and He says that there's one coming that will crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent will bruise his heel. And so there is this promise made, ultimately, that someone is coming that will crush the head of the serpent. The next covenant is the Noahic covenant. It's the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. And essentially God says that he's not going to destroy the earth again with water. And the sign, as you may remember, of God's covenant with Noah is the rainbow. Third covenant, and what I would say is kind of the primary covenant of the Old Testament is the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God makes with uh, this guy Abram that ultimately, uh, you know, eventually ends up in establishing the nation of Israel. It establishes Canaan as this sort of promised land for the nation of Israel. And what we also learn is that um, God will make Abraham's descendants numerous, He says, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, um, and that someone will come from the lineage of Abraham um, that will make Abraham's descendants a blessing to the nations. And so the Abrahamic covenant um, is kind of the quintessential covenant, and um, it 
immediately plays into the next, which is the Mosaic Covenant, or what some people call the covenant with the nation of Israel. And so this is um, the Israelites in the wilderness after God has brought them out of Egypt. God makes this covenant with them, and he hands down his law, and he says things like, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. And, um, and then finally, we have the Davidic covenant, covenant God makes with King David. And um, in all of these things, we see a pointing forward to Christ. We see a pointing forward to Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus will ultimately do. And so Jesus is this fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, He is the blessing to the nations that has come from Abraham's lineage. Um, He is, he says, the fulfillment of the law in the Gospels. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. So Jesus is sort of this perfect fulfillment. And in that respect, Jesus is um, the new Adam, right? He, he is the, um, the new man who is able to perfectly fulfill um, God's desires. Um, he is the one who is able to be tempted and yet not sin against God. And so Jesus is the one that fulfills all of these things. But as we're reading the Old Testament, it's incredibly important that we kind of know where we are in the covenantal storyline. We get to the New Testament and we see that there is a new covenant through Jesus's blood. Um, And um, this is also something that has been pointed to um, in the Old Testament. Matthew 26, 27 through 30 is what you want to look at and um, talking about this new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And this covenant supersedes all of the other covenants. And so for us, as we're interpreting and then applying this, we have to ask, well, what covenant are we living under? Um, We're not living under the Mosaic covenant anymore. We're not living under all of these laws Um, necessarily that God handed down to mankind. And so you may be going, well, does that mean the Ten Commandments don't apply to us anymore? And the answer is, well, no, the Ten Commandments still apply to us, but because Jesus has taught those same principles and affirmed those same principles in his teaching and and some of the other things that we find in the Mosaic Law as well. Um, But then there are things that that don't apply anymore. Uh, A great example is Leviticus 19.19. And uh, it says, you shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material, right? So this was uh, a law that had, you know, its intentions were to um, set apart the people of Israel as a separate people. The same verse says something like, you, you can't plant um, two different kinds of seed in your field. The people of Israel were to be a people who were different and a people set apart. Um, and and this, these were ways that God uh, desired for them to live. And yet this is not necessarily something we live under anymore. Um, we know that we don't live under um, the dietary requirements that are found in the Mosaic Law anymore either. Um, Jesus talks about that. Um, Peter sees this vision um, of kind of a cloth unfolding from heaven. And um, God teaches him that, um, that all things are clean, that all things are good and come from God. Um, so what covenant are we in? And, and if you're curious about the covenants, um, I'd really encourage you to uh, go check out the BibleProject.com, um, the BibleProject.com, and they have a fantastic video on the covenants. And so if you want the actual URL, it's thebibleproject.com slash explore slash covenants. And um, just a fantastic, really quick 
very clear explanation of the individual covenants and, um, and what they mean. So check that out. Uh, so context, covenant, our next C word is canon. C-A-N-O-N. And, and what we're saying here, what we're asking is, what does the text say about itself? And so a, a foundational hermeneutical principle is that Scripture interprets Scripture. In other words, that we should um, interpret difficult passages of Scripture based on other passages that are more clear. And, and so when reading the Old Testament, we want to know, well, what, is, what does the text say about itself? What connections are made to other parts of the Bible? And, and also, I think this is key, what do the New Testament authors say about Old Testament text? What do New Testament authors say about Old Testament text? So an example of the Old Testament referencing itself, uh, Psalm 95 says this, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa, in the wilderness. And so this is a, a piece in this Psalm of Moses that is referencing something that happened before. And, and it's referencing something that happens in the Old Testament. And so as we're studying and as we see things that are being quoted or things that are being referenced or maybe we pick up on something is being alluded to, well, we want to explore and figure out, well, where did this come from and what was happening in that situation and how does this relate? So Psalm 95, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah. Well, how did the people harden their hearts at Meribah? Like if we're going to understand this psalm, we have to dig back into that previous account to get some insight. Um, and, and like I said just a second ago, what does the New Testament have to say? One of the things we learn in the New Testament, and this is the road to Emmaus um, experience. Um, oh, I'm sorry, this isn't, and that, that's coming up. Uh, this is Mark 7, 18 through 23. And Jesus said to them, Then you are also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So this is what we were talking about just a second ago um, when we were talking about the covenants. And so, so Jesus is referencing back to um, what the people learn during that Mosaic period and what they still believed in many ways during his day and culture. And so what he's telling them there is, listen, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this, which was um, often the rhetorical form that he used when teaching. And, and so he's saying, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, and in and, and doing so, Scripture says he was declaring all foods clean. But then, verse 20, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, um, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and, and all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So Jesus is providing context for the Old Testament law um, in his teaching. And so, again, you know, just what does the New Testament say about the Old Testament? Um, there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of New Testament 
references to the Old Testament. And so one of the greatest ways for us to understand the Old Testament is through the lens of the New. And you can just Google that. You can Google um, uh, you know, New Testament references to Old Testament scriptures. Or you may have a particular study Bible that gives you a lot of that um, on the page. And, and I highly encourage you to explore it as you're reading. Uh, the next C is uh, the character of God. Um, who is God? As, as you're reading, who is God? What, what are you learning about God? What is God like? Um, we have to remember that God is not human, right? God is not a human being. If you look at old artwork um, from, you know, let's say the time of uh, Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel, um, you know, the, the finger picture of God kind of dipping his finger down from heaven. What, what, what does God look like in all of these pictures? You know, God is a white guy, right? God is this old man. Um, God has a long, flowing, white beard. Um, this, is, this is how people view God. This is how many of us view God. Um, and yet, where does this really come from? You know, this is not an image of God necessarily that comes from Scripture, and so what does the Bible say about God? What do we learn about who he is and about his character? Uh, Psalm 90 tells us that God is eternal and everlasting. He is sovereign over life and death as the mighty creator. He is a God of holy wrath, and he is a God of mercy, pity, and steadfast love, who is gloriously powerful and beautiful. And so as you're reading, what do you see God doing? Um, what do you learn about him? And then finally, uh, five interpretive lenses. We talked about context. We talked about the covenants. We talked about the canon, uh, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. We just mentioned the character of God. And the last one is Christ. How does this Old Testament text point forward to Christ? So we said before in the covenants, all of those things are pointing forward to Jesus. Um, But also um, in many other sections of the Old Testament, um, what's ultimately happening is Jesus um, is, uh, you know, the the text is pointing to Jesus and there is prophecy um, about what is to come with the Messiah. Um, Much of the book of Isaiah has to do with um, this suffering servant um, who will be pierced for our transgressions and who will be afflicted on our behalf. And so how are we seeing Jesus as we're reading? How is the text we're reading later fulfilled by Jesus? Um, and, and here's that road to Emmaus passage that I was mentioning earlier. This is Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27. And it says, He, uh, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus here in verse 27 is saying that the Old Testament scriptures, it says he begins with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning Himself, And so Jesus says that um, the content of the Old Testament is pointing to him. 
And so uh, those are our five C's for interpreting the Old Testament. And as I said, that's not an exhaustive um, list of rules for interpreting. And in a couple of weeks, we'll dig into more, uh, more of that in greater detail. But at least for today, um, that'll give us a start and a foundation, foundation. So context, covenant, canon, character of God, and Christ. And then in these last few minutes, let's just talk about the New Testament. And, and some of those same things apply. Um, you know, talking about covenants. Well, we're going to talk about the New Covenant when we're um, reading through the New Testament. Um, context is still um, incredibly important, so we don't lose that. But some things we want to think about with the New Testament, and, and this one is also true of the Old Testament. Um, we want to remember the basic genres. Um, what are we reading? You know, like what kind of literary work is this? Um, and, and is this work characteristic of, of that particular literary style? You know, are we finding the things that one would find in uh, that particular literary style? And so, for example, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the only book of prophecy in the New Testament. And we find things in the book of Revelation that are 100% in keeping with the book of prophecy. We're finding symbolism, we're finding metaphor, um, we're finding these things where we're going, man, what in the world does this mean? And, um, and so we just want to remember, oh, this is a book of prophecy, and so maybe we're not going to interpret all of these things 100% literally. Maybe metaphor or artistic language is being in, 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 imposed here, or used here, and so we want to take that into account when we interpret. Um, and, and, and so um, we'll talk more about that in coming weeks, but, but just New Testament genres. The Gospels uh, are primarily works of biography, and yet there are sub-genres within the Gospels. We see poetry, um, we see uh, parable, which is this form that Jesus teaches in often. Uh, we find a book of history, um, in the New Testament, the book of Acts, we find correspondence, the letters of the Apostle Paul. Um, and, and, and so, again, we want to interpret those things in keeping with that particular literary genre. And so, if we're just talking about a book of history, like the book of Acts, which does very much provide this chronological account of this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, well, that's not primarily a book of prophecy, um, in other words, it's not a book where we would expect to find intense metaphor or symbolism. And so that means when we're interpreting the book of Acts, we're going to interpret it more literally. Um, and, and so, for example, in, in, in the very beginning of the book of Acts, one of the things that happens is the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles. And what the Bible says is that it looks like divided tongues of fire were descending and we're coming to rest on all of these people. And we read that in a very literal way um, because this is a book of history. This is the book of Acts. We have no reason to read this as being some kind of metaphorical or symbolic thing, but instead a very literal and real event, and that as the Holy Spirit fell, that's literally what it looked like. Um, and so that genre tells us or gives us insight into how we should approach the text. Um, and so the same thing is true throughout the whole Bible. Understanding the type of book that we are in 
is incredibly important when it comes to interpreting. So remember the basic genres of the New Testament. Secondly, in the Gospels, keep your eyes on Jesus. Um, So this is important. What does this passage tell me about Jesus? Remember, um, if we're seeking to be followers of Jesus, if you're seeking to be a disciple of Jesus, then we're using the Word of God to learn Jesus. Who is He? What does He teach? What does He do? What does He not do? How does He make decisions? All of those things. So as you're reading, what do you learn about this guy, Jesus? What do you learn about him that you could then later on apply to your own life? Uh, Luke chapter 4. We, we've looked at this before. Luke 4, 1 through 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And that that passage goes on and tells us this story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Many of us uh, just immediately jump to application. Um, So rather than interpreting what's happening there, we immediately jump to what does this mean for me, and we quickly turn this into a passage that is about, uh, you know, Jesus' plan for defeating temptation. And I think one of the things that we have to do before we can get to that is we just have to see who Jesus is in this passage. And so Jesus is somebody that is deeply deeply acquainted with the what we know as the Old Testament. And, and that is one of the ways that he is responding to temptation from the enemy. He's responding by saying things like, you know, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting the Old Testament. And so one of the things we learn about Jesus is that Jesus is fluent in Old Testament Scripture. Now, obviously, Jesus is God, and this is the Word of God, and so of course He's fluent in it. But but maybe for us, if we're seeking to follow Jesus and emulate Jesus and be like Jesus, maybe we also should be people who are hiding the Word of God in our heart and who are uh, kind of feasting on the words of Scripture so that we also, later in application, um, can utilize the Word of God in fighting and defeating temptation. So what does that passage tell you about Jesus? What does it tell you that Jesus did um, as you're reading the parables, or you're reading the Sermon on the Mount? What did Jesus teach? What did He say? Um, who is He? Um, and, and what does it mean to be His disciple as well? I think we're looking at the lives of the disciples in relationship to Jesus and going, Man, what did He want of them? What did he expect of them? What did he teach them? Um, Because if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, well, you're a disciple also. And so how is Jesus teaching you? If you're not reading his word, or if you're not digging into it, or if you're not trying to learn him in his word, then chances are you're you're struggling as a disciple. Um, And there's a lot of growth there for you, potentially. Um, So these are questions we have to be asking. So in the Gospels, keep your eyes on Jesus. Uh, As you're reading the epistles, this is the next uh, little note here for interpreting the New Testament. Um, In the epistles, so the letters of Paul, um, the letters of Peter, John, remember the indicative imperative pattern. 
And, and so let me explain what this is, the indicative imperative pattern. And part of this is, is we're trying to get to the heart of this question, what did this mean to the original recipients? Um, so again, application asks a question, what does this mean for me? But a part of interpretation is asking, what did this mean for the original recipients? So if Paul is sending, as we saw earlier, a letter to Timothy, what did that letter mean to Timothy? I think the more that we can get to the heart of some of um, those questions and answering those questions, um, the better the interpretation we have. Um, and so here are just some examples of kind of what we're talking about. Um, the imperative and indicative uh, pattern. And so uh, the commands and exhortations of the gospel, um, which are the imperatives, the commands and exhortations of the gospel, the, the you need to do that, those kinds of statements, those imperative statements, they always arise from an exposition of God's grace. In other words, th- these indicative things. God has done this, and so you should do this in response. And so the imperatives, the you need to do this, the imperatives flow from the indicatives. And um, you could say the indicatives give rise to the imperatives. And so here's an example. Um, uh, You have been forgiven, therefore forgive. So the indicative there is you have been forgiven, and the imperative is therefore forgive. Um, You have been made holy through Christ, Therefore, be holy in your conduct. Um, indicative, imperative. God has done this for you, and so as a result, you should do this. And uh, a key word there that you're looking for is just that word, therefore. Um, it's telling you maybe there's something going on there. Um, and we're learning again about who God is and about who Jesus is and what he has done And then we're very clearly learning what we should do in response. You have been forgiven, okay? That's what God has done for you. You were a sinner condemned to death and hell, and yet God has forgiven you. And so what should you do in response to that? Well, you should forgive people. You should model uh, the same thing to the world around you. Uh, You've been made holy through Christ, through His blood, through His perfect life. You have been made holy, even though you're not holy at all. You've done nothing to earn that on your own. Jesus has made you holy, and so therefore be holy in your conduct. Because of what Jesus has done for you, we should pursue holiness in our lives. We should put sin to death. We should pursue the things of God. We should desire to emulate Jesus and to be like Jesus in our everyday lives. Uh, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 and 16. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So this is an interesting passage because not only is it giving us that indicative imperative pattern, but it also is quoting the Old Testament. So this is another place in the New Testament where there is a reference to Old Testament scripture that is helping us contextualize and understand the Old Testament. And so somewhere it's telling us, you be holy for I am holy. Um, And we go back and we find, well, this is a command that God gave to the people of Israel. God wanted the people of Israel to do the same thing that he wants us to do. 
He wants us to pursue holiness, to be holy. And, and the reason why is because He is holy. And so that's that imperative uh, indicative pattern. Um, in the book of Ephesians, we see this play out. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians um, those chapters are all about Paul talking about the riches of God's grace towards us in Jesus. Um, here's what God has done for us um, in Jesus. And then chapters 4 through 6 is Paul drawing out the implications um, and applying and exhorting his readers to holiness. And so uh, if you just kind of divide up the book of Ephesians, there is the indicative section and then there's the imperative section. God has done this, so now you do this. Um, the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters are indicative. Uh, the, uh, from there, chapters 12 through 16 are imperative. And if you're reading an NIV Bible, the first word of Romans chapter 12 is the word, therefore. Um, so this is uh, often how Paul writes, kind of laying out his case in this way. Here's what we know about God, and here's what, what we should do in response. Um, and then finally, uh, let's just remember what Scripture is for. Uh, you know, like, why are we reading this in the first place? Um, you know, we've said that we have to remember the genres and in, in interpretation. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to remember that indicative imperative pattern. But we also have to remember the purpose of Scripture. And so what is this text teaching me? Um, remember, the purpose of Scripture for us is uh, seen in 2 Timothy 4.16. It says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Um, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so Scripture is desiring to help make you complete and help equip you for every good work. And so how, as you're studying and interpreting, how, and this is a little bit of an application point, but how is this doing this for you? And so we see this bridge between interpretation and application here. Um, and so just remember what Scripture is for as you're interpreting. If your interpretation is somehow counter to the stated purpose of the Bible, well, maybe something's messed up there. Maybe you need to take a second look at it. Um, so ask questions like, what is this text teaching me? Or, or how is this text reproving or correcting me? Um, and so when you're seeing texts that say, be holy because God's holy, well, that's very clearly teaching us something. And it's, it's kind of maybe correcting us in a way. It's telling us, no, 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 don't, don't pursue your own path. Pursue God's path. What is the text training you to do? Um, and so we're going to stop there for today. Um, hopefully that gives you some insight into just some first steps, some foundations for studying the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, next week we're going to pick up with application, and we're going to start talking more about, okay, so now that we know what this means, um, what does it mean for me? And then we will circle back around and we'll dig in even deeper into this whole interpretation thing and look at uh, the different genres and how do we deal with things that are deeply symbolic or metaphorical? What do we do with that stuff that seems so strange or bizarre? Um, how do we uh, deal with the whole character of God thing? We, we talked about that earlier, the character of God. How do we see God's character throughout Scripture? And so what do we do when we see God telling the Israelites to uh, murder a bunch of people? You know, like what, how do we respond and, and what do we learn about God in those situations? And so we're going to dig all, into all of that in the final two weeks. And uh, so thanks so much for taking some time to listen.